Welcome to the School of Art and Design podcast. This series features conversations with undergraduate students around their final year research, driven by their experience within the interdisciplinary academic and research methods module, commonly referred to as the constellation module within the school. Hello, my name is Dr. Bethan Gordon. Hello, I'm Dr. Martin Woodward. Hello, I'm Brent Allred. I'm an artist designer maker at School, Cardiff School of Art and Design. Brent, would you like to tell us a little bit about your dissertation? Um, I wrote my dissertation on kind of ecology and connection and kind of how, kind of looking at how maybe separation between those kind of where we are now and kind of our environment maybe kind of started to happen, but also how that might be kind of brought back together into more kind of like a unified thing instead of kind of seeing separation between kind of human and nature or anything kind of along those lines. Okay, so so what was the title of your dissertation? So my dissertation was called Land as Material, Narratives of Care and Application for Ecological Connection. So now that you've finished your studies, as a practitioner, if I was to ask you for three words to describe yourself, what would it be? Well, what would they be? I think I probably, I do connect myself kind of quite a lot with the word maker. Uh, I do, I do make things. That is what I do. Um, whether or not be kind of like physical objects or kind of making connections between people and landscapes and things, it is all making. What if um, using, using the, the body of work that you're presenting in your degree show, the, the, you know, the work that really comes from, from your personal interests, You've described that work and what that work aims to do. I'm I'm using wool. Um, I always come back to wool as a material. It's a really important material. I was at a talk by the Land Workers Alliance about a month ago, and and it's somebody who's um, is a does work with wool. Said that we have over sixty breeds of sheep in the UK, which is the most breeds of sheep that any country in the world has, but we still don't know what these sheep look like, what their wool looks like, what the qualities of their wool like. Even people who work with wool don't know these things. So I have a spinning wheel, I can spin, I can knit, I can crochet, um, can't weave for some reason. That one's never happened. Um, and I'm using light, so I'm making lights made out of felt. And I think light's a really wonderful material. When you, when you treat it, when I kind of, it's like an artist or as a designer, you treat it as a material. You know, you can use it in a kind of like cheesy way and say you're like shining a light on the material, but it it does, it, it lights what you use to kind of show the qualities of things. It's what we need to experience those qualities. And when you put a, a light into kind of something that's been felted, you see the structure of the wool. I'm actually using Lincoln wool, it's the main wool that I'm using the most, and it's a wool that's traditionally not used for felting because um, it's so coarse. And when you put the light into it, you actually see how the, the fibers haven't felted together. Whereas if I may be using a breed of sheep like Corridale, when the felt goes in, you can see there's almost like no gaps between the fibers, it has kind of become one. And it's because those fibers are so much softer. You can you can see kind of where the sheep lived, how the sheep was. Like you kind of see that through the lights in a way. And then uh, for my last project, I really just realized I wanted to make something beautiful. I wanted to make something pretty and nice. 
I think there's a lot of push to kind of do the most innovative, cutting edge thing you possibly can think of ever. And actually, I I just was like, I just want to make something comforting, beautiful. I, I really think that I kind of, I needed that on a really personal level. I needed to make something I could look at and be like, I'm happy with that. It looks good and it's done. <laughs> but I also think I needed that kind of coming out of lockdown. I needed something I really physically made that I could kind of have like outside of myself. I think sometimes if you're somebody who quite likes theory, you can kind of get yourself too bogged down in it and kind of just want to do this sort of stuff. But I really wanted something beautiful that was kind of like outside of myself that had been made by me. Uh, and I, I think lighting is a fantastic tool to achieve that. It's, it's kind of almost always sort of fun and enthralling. Okay, that that's fantastic. And to hear about the natural materials and the aesthetic um, and the practitioner that you are, then it's really interesting. Then if we look at your dissertation and the topic that you explored in your dissertation around materiality and ecology. Um, so so you've given us your, your dissertation question. Do you want to talk us through, you know, how did you start this body of research? Or, may, or maybe in the first instance, Summarise your dissertation for us. What was that about? I, th I think my dissertation was quite a self-indulgent, um, <laughs> picking apart of kind of a lot of different things in my head. It was, an, it was an exercise in tidying up everything that flies around inside there. And I think when I brought it back down again, it was about, it was about ecology, it was about connection. And I don't really kind of know how to separate them. And I, don't, I think that was going to maybe come up kind of later on, but kind of about like, joy and love and care and how these kind of actions because because I think all of those things are an action like care is a verb and that's what I needed to do with my dissertation and I, I think I did maybe <laughs> so the, the, the theme that both your the focus in your practical work and your dissertation research the thing that's the, that's shared by both is the theme of of the natural wool and you creating artifacts everyday artifacts from from that material which attempt to or are created as a result of you reconnecting with the natural environment in a way that forms your research yes could you talk us through the um the socks that forms the 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 artifacts component of your dissertation because I think the, the it's the, those artifacts really reveal the work of the dissertation. Yeah, so I um, coming out of lockdown, uh, I really wanted to make an artifact with my dissertation. Um, having the opportunity to make as many different things as possible after coming out of lockdown just seemed like a necessity. Um, I was kind of going through researching my diss and I couldn't find what like how to pin it down. And then I kind of had this idea, um, well, just kind of, I think I was just having lunch or something. And I was like, I'd really like to be able to make my own pair of socks, like from scratch, beginning to end. I think that'd be like a real achievement because I, I can spin wool, so like from raw fleece to finished sock. And then I was thinking about this and I'd been kind of looking at a lot of um, kind of art that kind of feeds into kind of like the world around it. And I was like, but I have these white, socks then because I have white fleece at home what if I took these socks and went for a walk in them what if 
like what would I pick up on them kind of like you know it's like walking barefoot like we never do it you know when you take your feet off your feet off (laughs) when you take your shoes off and you like kind of wriggle your toes into the grass on like a hot sunny day you just realize how how much our feet are always really enclosed and then taking um that and being able to kind of show this thing that had so like so many hours of labor put into making it but I I can I can smell the sheep on the wool and kind of now I can because I've gone for a walk in these socks and they're all covered in kind of mud and kind of just the gritty dirt that you get in a city on a city road I can also smell my street that I live on on the socks so I can smell both kind of the raw sheep wool and this kind of the dust that cities build up it's kind of, it feels very, um, it's kind of like a separation kind of between city and rural that we still kind of live by, but it's just, it's not there. I mean, this fleece made its way into the city through like a friend of a friend and then they gave it to me. I've always lived in cities. I was born in a city and I've still ended up with this fleece through like, you know, a friend of a friend who's a farmer in the valleys. And I, th- I think I'm really excited to kind of do the socks again because, you know, I've only got one couple of roads in Cardiff kind of documented in this way. I think it'd be really lovely to take it to like another site and actually build it up as a collection. You know, like what would the socks look like span out of a different fleece? And then that fleece walked over different streets or paths doing different activities. Yeah. So it's really about drawing attention to not just the ecology of where the material comes from in the first place, and, and that, and and the, and the local uh, land-based connection to that sheep, but also to how in using that artifact, you, it's, you're you're doing it in a in in an ecological context that's different. You you said something really nice at the start of your. When you first chose, when you first chose to do the socks, and it was about taking taking something which which would you taken from an ecological con- context, wearing it and setting it free again, and taking it back to another ecological context and and letting it play out. Um, is is that was that a method for you to better understand those ecological contexts? Do you think? I think everything that I was doing is something you can't only theorize about. It has to be done. It's something about like it it it's the theory of something that is a practice. It can only be a practice, it can only be a living thing. The socks needed to do that. If I had written my dissertation and not had the socks with them, I don't I don't think it would have had any outcome really. Like you can't live in a just like, well, the next step could possibly be, um, you have to do it. And like I said, I do think my dissertation was somewhat self-indulgent. And I'm happy that I did that. And the socks were a very intimate, very personal thing. I, you know, I span them in my living room by myself. I wasn't showing anyone else. I knitted them up or like watching TV by myself or like with a flatmate. And I did the walk by myself. And I can now like present that to people and share that kind of afterwards with people. You mentioned self-indulgent a couple of times, which is a in- really interesting um, choice of phrase um, because your dissertation, um, it opens up and acknowledges the climate that we're currently in, the global climate, and actually the significance of your topic in light of finite resources. So I wonder if you could talk to that slightly about that angle and how that inspired the work that you did in your research. Um, I was really lucky when I was 18. I went to a 
seminar on queer theory with the International Falcon Movement just outside of Berlin. Uh, and the seminar topic that I ended up specializing in is there's no I in solidarity. Oh, hang on a second, there is. And I think that's why I think my dissertation was self-indulgent. It's not all the topics I'm looking at are communal topics. All the topics I'm looking at are global topics. They're all, they, they need a community to exist. They, they're planet-wide. This was me for myself and tidying how I can be part of that community, what I can do in that community. I, I think it's really important sometimes for us to, like, you know, you're not just an individual by yourself, you're an individual in a community, but being a community doesn't erase you being an individual. You know, me and my three sisters, completely different people, but we are three sisters. We're always referred to as that by everyone. Everyone has different skills and talents. Yeah, that, that's that's why I think it was self-indulgent. Yeah, and I, th I think that's a, a, a great take on it. And maybe the the finite resources that you talk to and how... I understand why you explored this topic from a personal perspective. It's almost like a personal itch. Um, uh, you know, you had a personal itch and you wanted to pursue it. But actually, there's some greater good that comes from that, that we can share more widely and others can learn from it. So I wonder if you could talk to, to that journey that you went on and those, those, those findings. Oh, yeah, I completely think it's going to change the way I interact with people um, afterwards. Um, there's a lot of ideas. So some of the ideas I put into my dissertation were ones I've had before I even started the research. What it did is it made me really examine those why they're important to me, what drew, drew me to them, how I was drawn to them. And now when I have somebody, when I'm like kind of, you know, talking to somebody or I meet someone um, or somebody's asking me a question, I, I have like a grounding to be able to communicate that to somebody more clearly. If somebody kind of wants to do similar things that I've done, I now understand how to give them that information. And it also made me look at kind of, it made, it made me, go like, well, what is actually important to me and what actually does inspire me? When you have to cut it down, you realize that some things are good and nice, but they're not the ones that are important to you. I think it, it made me feel more grounded in my beliefs. I think, I think my dissertation for me was very ethical or belief-based. I am quite an ethical person. My, my flatmate's always joking that I'm... I don't, I'm very, I'm very ethically driven, but that doesn't mean I like adhere to laws. <laughs> um, I, I think I needed to work out what my ethics were um, for myself. What was I going to let myself do? What can I not let myself do? What can I live with? What can I not live with? And kind of just sort of like letting myself kind of, you know, travel through the world in a bit of a wind, whirlwind. It kind of gave me a kind of marker to stop, figure it out and kind of go from there which I, I think is a really important thing to do kind of periodically in your life anyway. Um, and I think kind of at this point in my life, I think it's an especially important one. Um, I think it really gave me the opportunity to do that. And I mean, it was Martin at one point when I was deciding what I was going to write my uh, dissertation on. And he was like, your undergrad dissertation is one of the only other times in your life that you get the opportunity to do this much writing and this much research without it being dictated by what somebody else wants. So I was like, well, I might as well take it. 
talking about the research and, and we haven't really touched on the process and how you went about it. We've kind of delved straight into your dissertation. Um, but actually, how did you find that process uh, that, that uh, you know, and how... How prepared did you feel for that process? It's a big undertaking, isn't it? Or an exciting undertaking as well. I think at first I just felt really excited. And then very quickly I felt very overwhelmed. In, in some ways, a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at is really recent stuff. But lots of the stuff that's also got like decades and decades and decades of research. And you kind of go and you start looking into this and you're like, where do I start? What's already out there? How do you respect what's already out there? How do you compare things? You know, you're talking about like reading people's like life's work <laughs> um, and deciding whether or not you like it more or less than somebody else's life's work, which is just, it feels like a bit of an odd thing to do when you're in your early twenties to somebody who's, you know, born before your parents were born. <laughs> I, think I, I was very, Influence, like I am, I'm very influenced by my upbringing. Um, I was brought up on a lot of allotments, a lot of community projects. Um, I was home educated, and I, I knew I knew I needed to unpack why that made me kind of the way that I I was. So I kind of started there, but I just I kind of got a bit lost in that. I wasn't I couldn't quite get my fingers into it. Um, and I think I kind of ended up looking at kind of like allotmenting movements and things like that. And I kind of started looking at, well, where did those come from? And it was quite early on. Uh, I started talking about stuff and Martin was like, oh, well, I'm not sure if this is your thing, but it might be your thing. And he said to have a look at Val Plumwood's Mastery of Nature, which is actually a really odd experience for me because I'm somebody who people have always walked up to me and be like, oh, well, you're a feminist. And be like, am I? I don't, I don't know if I ever told you that or people that like I like have mutual friends I've known for ages will be like, oh, yeah, because Bryn's such a feminist. I'm like, I don't, I don't ever especially say that I am really. I like, I'm not, I'm not, not one. But also doesn't mean that I am one. Um, and actually I kind of really separated myself from a lot of feminist theory kind of at some point in my teens. Cause I just, I was, I think I was just too sick of other people presuming it about me. And actually there was loads of stuff that I was like, well, I can't, get to the deeper stuff with you because you're so because people being so surface level about it with me I couldn't actually explain like why I did have thoughts about these things <laughs> and it was actually Martin coming back to me with a book that you know is a feminist writing it is a feminist writing absolutely and saying it might not be your thing you might be into it and then me reading it and it was it was mixing a lot of the theory that I'm very interested in but very much grounding it kind of also with feminist theory. And I was like, okay, well, this is what I've been trying to get to for ages. This is what I've been trying to think and what I've been trying to say to people. And lots of it's really heavy. Um, and some of it did just go over my head. And I'm sure, I've, like, I definitely will read, read it at some point in my life. But she unpacked so much really beautiful stuff kind of about how nature is, it, it's, it's not even real. <laughs> It's something we've conceptualized so much to kind of have like an us and a them and how we f make these us and them. So we have human and we have nature and then, you know, you go on and on and on and you kind of, she looked at how you have white and you have black and you have women and you have men. And this is constantly kind of making these separations and using those for 
she calls it the master the master group and she kind of talks about how this changes throughout history at different points. This, this group has been, you know, de defined differently on who is on the in and who is on the out of it. Um, and that nature is just another player in all of this. And there's, a, there's some really beautiful stuff in there. So I, you know, I was kind of like, okay, all right. I already know that like inequality exists in the world. I, under, I understand that. And then there's some really beautiful stuff that I, it's right in the, she talks about it at length in the text, but she puts it really beautifully in the conclusion where she's like, well, we, ha we have to go forwards and we need new stories. We need something new to hold on to. Like our culture is so important to us. I think sometimes we're a little bit culture blind to it in the UK, we're like culture blind to our own culture in the UK because it is a globally, it's a very dominant culture and we are living in it. So I think sometimes we ignore a lot of it um, and don't think it's there, but like we need new stories to carry us forwards and she was writing this before I was born um you know, she was talking about climate collapse she was talking about the fact that we don't have these stories to carry us forward she was writing this before I was born I was born then a few years after this text came out and I read it and I got really I'm getting a little bit emotional thinking about it now even and it's like I am a child of climate collapse that is all that I've ever lived is all I will ever live You've been so reflective. It's been such a reflective process for you, hasn't it? Not only in your learning style, not only in your learning gone by, but also in what you've learned and what you've come to realize through these case studies and the literature that you've learned, um, which makes it very powerful, which is why, you know, it's it's hitting home, the the reality of what you've been learning. And I'm I'm gonna ask you now, so I'm gonna go back to the socks then. So the the this literature that's so powerful. How is that then seen in your socks? I was just talking about stories. Mm -hmm. The socks are very narrative. Yeah. The socks ha have to have a narrative in them because I think pretty much everything does. You know, if you really challenge yourself, I think anybody who has any training or has studied themselves, any creative kind of practice will understand that everything has a narrative. I think the problem is almost that we've cut the narratives up into kind of digestible little chunks that can be consumed in smaller and smaller amounts. They're more and more enclosed. And actually we need to kind of give the stuff in our lives, <laughs> like it's full narrative. So the, the socks, you know, I could have, I could have started the narrative of the socks at any point. I actually do have quite a clear and beginning and end to them that I can put I don't know what breed of sheep it is. I don't know what hill that she sheep ate on. I don't know where that sheep was born. I don't know the lineage of that sheep. Right the way, you know, I could I could go to, you know, looking at the kind of the grass and the soil that that sheep fed on. I could go right back that way, further and further and further if I wanted to. The socks, I haven't started to compost them. Um, I haven't seen what like that compost might turn into. So actually, if you if you look at it, it might look like quite a long narrative in comparison to some of the narratives of things that we're given now. But I've actually really cut it down, and it's the same thing for. It was um, this is something I'm really passionate about is that mobile phones are like a natural product. <laughs> Everything on my phone comes off this planet. It's the way it's been handled, the way the people who handle it are treated, and what it's used for as a as a tool, that's the thing that's out of balance, 
where the phone will go after I stop using it. That that's what we kind of try are trying to communicate when we say it's unnatural. We're saying we're kind of a way of saying we don't agree with it. Sometimes I think, but it is it is all off this planet, and that's a really beautiful thing that you know everything we have ever seen, bar like a very few things, are off this planet. And like we didn't even have a concept of like being off this planet until some point in the 60s when that big picture of the earth came up for the first time was in all the newspapers and everyone talks about like, actually there being this massive cultural shock of seeing a photo of earth. Everyone in this room has grown up with photos of earth being very readily available, but our grandparents and our great grandparents didn't. That's a massive cultural shift that's already happened with how we consider, you know, the planet. But just like every other human that's ever been alive, everything that I've handled, to my knowledge, has come off this earth. I haven't handled any meteorite. It's on my bucket list, though. <laughs> so that, that use of the word stuff uh, is really interesting one. And would you say, and maybe Martin, you can come in and, and hear, but would you also say that that there's an element in your dissertation where you're developing relationships with stuff? Because if we develop relationships, will we interact with it differently? Will we you know, will it mean more to us? Because again, you talked about your values that you've developed through this. Are you also, you know, through this dissertation, developing values in the stuff that's produced so people will have it longer rather than adding to this landfill? I think we absolutely should have the stuff that we have long for longer. Um, I think that that needs to happen from loads of different places. It needs to come from the production of stuff. You know, our laptops and phones have very short lifespans built into them. I really believe in like the right to repair movement. I think they're doing really amazing stuff considering how little governmental support the right to repair movement has got. They're doing really amazing things. Um, they set up cafes all over the world to repair items. Normally electronic items is the focus, but even things like darning, which is you know, a dying art, very few people know how to darn anymore. Uh, but I also think that there's, um, we need to look at the stuff that we already have as well. There is so much stuff, but the, the problem we have now is I've started noticing it. I buy a lot of my clothes from charity shops. A lot of my friends buy a lot of their clothes from charity shops. Like I said, I am a child of climate collapse. It's very ingrained in us to behave in these sorts of ways at this point. The clothes that are turning up are so low quality now because of fast fashion. The material that's coming out, the material that is like almost instantaneously being treated as waste, we we can't use in the ways that it has historically been used. This is happening globally. You know, we talk about how much textile waste is like shipped off to just like so many different countries around the world so as that Europe doesn't have to deal with it. And lots of these places have come up with really ingenious tactics for patchworking, reselling, all this up there, those techniques are starting to not be as effective anymore because the very cloth that's coming through, even if it's, you know, really trash clothing that can't be used as like the, the original item that was kind of made into, they can't anymore. The denim isn't strong enough. The cotton is just too elastic and stretchy. Uh, they're just, we, we're producing stuff now that can't even go through these kind of cycles that we we have already started developing. I think that's something kind of going forwards that I'm really worried about. I think I kind of started kind of dipping my toe into that kind of at the end of my dissertation. And I think kind of 
since then more and more I've got really worried of being like, this is actually a massive emergency because we can't even be like, right, let's just <laughs> stop it and start like, you know, going through all of these piles of clothes and seeing what we can reuse. Because most of it we can't reuse and it can't be composted because it's mixed fibers. It's very synthetic. The dye is just like really nasty stuff that's been used in a horrible way. And I think that's, that's so sad. It feels like a real like disrespect to the, to the material and to every person who's handed that material to get it to you. I, I joke with friends a lot that, you know, the most talented seems like sewists in the world are probably, probably fit people who are able to fit a stretch sleeve into a t-shirt in Bangladesh rather than anyone who works on like Savile Row, you know? They are very skilled people. And that kind of, we're disrespecting these items that are so resource intensive and we're not even, not even making something that can be recycled. We're gonna to have to completely change our approach to how we think of textile recycling going forward if we want to do that. That really helps to understand where your lights come from that you first started with. So you think you're an artist designer maker by trade, one of a better term, right? We look in this room now, we can look in this room because we're in the room. Um, how many objects in this room have been made by a designer or by somebody associated with design, right? That's, they're here. Everything. And everything is. Your choice to make everyday artifacts such as lampshades and lights, ephemeral things that are just invisible to everybody, but out of a, a material which is sourced differently, brings different narratives of it. And through the aesthetic of the use of the artifact, it highlights those things, could potentially create change in the everyday that nothing in this room designed by a designer intentionally to be used could ever do because it becomes a part of the everyday of, of, of the, of the lived experience of the everyday person. I, I think, I think it's a real tragedy that there are children and adults who have never worn an item of clothing that wouldn't be considered to be an item of fast fashion. I have clothes that are like, you know, 100% cotton shirts that I found in charity shops, like this one that I'm wearing. It's got a lovely herringbone weave on it. It's gorgeous. And I think it's really sad that other people don't get to experience that. I think I think it's, it's, it's wrong. You know, I think like, you know, in schools, all the tables are all laminate now and you never get to touch wood. You never get to see how it ages. Or, you know, you should be able to scratch your name into a wooden desk actually in school. Because um, <laughs> laminate looks horrible when you carve into it. <laughs> I think it's really sad the number of kettles that drip. You know, we've landed on the moon. We shouldn't still have kettles that pour badly. <laughs> I think design is really important. It's what we surround ourselves with constantly. Everything around us is designed. I think very few people on this planet don't see that every day. Um, don't see some form of design every day. So if we go back to when you started your course, when you started your journey as a, a, a BA artist designer maker in the first year um, to, to now, how do you think you've developed and changed and how do you think your research and your practice has has changed over those years because of what you, you've explored and what you've um, come to realise or had affirmed through your research? Um, I think coming into this, I... I was actually thinking about climate collapse a lot. I'm a little bit of a prepper. Um, I knew that when supply lines like fall apart, I still wanted to have nice stuff. 
And I thought that everyone should still be able to have nice stuff, even if there's like mass global economic and, cli and climate collapse. Um, so I was like, right, well, I need to get the skills to do that. I still want to have, you know, a nice teapot and a nice kettle and a good bed. And, you know, I probably will still need a radio or a mobile phone. So I need to ha know how to mend them. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I need to get those skills. And I kind of chatted to a few different people and I'm disabled and I'm female. And actually it's really hard to get into craft or practical industries if you're both of those things. And I'd heard of this course ages ago because Ingrid Murphy came and did a talk at my college when I was 15. I was like, right, I think I want to go and do that. <laughs> I think I want to go and I want to learn how to make stuff. So I came on to the course. I was still really, the focus for me really was on stuff. It's always been kind of like an element of kind of play and fun, I think, in it. I think kind of one of the first projects I ever did was like making some like toy bricks. And then lockdown happened. And I think that made me really go back to kind of domestic stuff and made me interact with kind of domestic environments really intensely. And again, brought me back to, well, stuff's really important because I was in my house all of the time. And I was, you know, I really hated my sofa in the house I was in over lockdown and it made a massive difference. It was a horrible sofa. <laughs> and I got into, I had my spinning wheel. So I got really good at spinning. And I was in the kitchen cooking loads because it was locked down. So I was using all of my kitchen waste to dye my yarn that I was spinning. Lots of lovely shades of brown, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> but I was like, okay, all right. So why, why is this not, like, why doesn't this happen more? What actually is the problem? And one is you do want some colors other than brown in your life. And the other one is people just don't know how to do these things. When I tell people that I can spin yarn, or when they watch me do it, completely blows everyone's mind. Like every single time. Even friends of mine who do textiles are still like, oh my God, you have a spinning wheel and you can spin, you can do it. And I start explaining it to people and they're like, that's nuts. And if you think, you know, so many of the words and so many different points in history, women were defined by spinning. You know, a spindle or a, what are the ones they use for hemp? Dudles, something like that. The ones that they use for spinning hemp off uh, are like have been like the symbols of women in so many different cultures throughout history. Um, words like spinster comes from spinning, first like group of women to have enough wage they didn't need to marry men. Kind of medieval Britain. It's 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 so ingrained in it in us. Everyone used to spin in the evening all the time, and nobody knows how to do it anymore in kind of the space of kind of like three, four generations, it's gone to being a very specialist craft. There's like one lecturer at this uni who knows how to spin. And she was so excited when I came in and told her I wanted to spin. She loved it. She was like, I'll teach you, please, please, please keep on doing it. And it's, it's it, you haven't even got to weaving at the point when you're spinning. You have, you're so far away from having a garment when you're spinning. It's the, um, you wanted to be empowered and knowledge and the knowledge of how to fix things, take things apart. And actually that's premised on problem solving because everything is very different, but actually the route to creativity is understanding actually how do I problem solve? How do we problem solve? So I can actually um, take things apart and explore it. And I suppose as you've progressed on the course, actually now you've had um, lots of ideas and thoughts, but actually your research has, has challenged those thoughts and ideas and, and confirmed them and supported them 
or pointed you into different directions. And I suppose you've talked about like why you joined the course. And I suppose what we're interested in is, well, actually what's next now? Now you really have this identity as a, as a maker and you are starting to understand the values, that, you know, what's important to you and what's important to us collectively. Well, what, what's next? How are you going to, uh, how are you going to change the bit of the world that's in your control? So when I was looking at wanting to make stuff and I it was, I think at that point it was quite a personal thing I wanted to make stuff I think the spinning showed me how much other people want to make stuff and how much other people don't know how to make stuff we don't know how to do basic DIY things like um people don't know how to like pot their like food like do you like potting anymore like food like pres like preserving things stuff like that people don't know those things anymore and that I think lots of people really wish that they did I think it kind of does feel like a kind of a bit of like a kind of loss of knowledge has happened somewhere. So I think that's kind of where I'm going forwards is that actually I, I, I kind of need to go into education of some form. That is what interests me. I, I love making stuff and I think I'll always need to do it. But I, again, you know, there's no I in solidarity, but there is. If I want to make stuff, I'm going to need other people to do it. I can spin, but I can't weave. So I need somebody who can weave. Um, I can spin, but I can't keep sheep. So I need somebody who can keep sheep. I know other people who are much better at making Bakewell tarts than me. And I love a Bakewell tart. Um, <laughs> you're always going to need other people and figuring out where you can fit in with the other people in the community that can support itself, sustain itself, have connections with communities outside of kind of the immediate one. Because, you know, you can look at, where we are kind of, I was talking about the themes of my dissertation, but being very global in a lot of ways, I could go very, very immediate and say kind of, you know, my immediate community isn't just within Cardiff, it's within like quite a small area of Cardiff is where most of my friends live. And then, but then, you know, the food that I eat suddenly, that's just a, that's a global thing, really like immediately straight away, the energy that I use is, you know, global again even within these kind of communities of people who kind of work with each other, it always immediately becomes global really, really quickly. That just is how we live now. I go to community gardens um, called Global Gardens. And, you know, we get our seeds and our like kind of like uh, rootstock for trees and things like that, all quite locally, all kind of within South Wales or the Southwest of England. But we still go global for stuff you know because sometimes we have people who um are sanctuary seekers in cardiff and they want to grow like a certain hub that they can't find in cardiff we might not be able to get that seed in the uk we might have to go to like france or something things like we don't have flaxseed grown anymore in the uk commercially for growing so you have to get that from france which again you know if you want a textiles industry we're going to have to start growing flax it is it's kind of about seeing those kind of loops they loop around each other and they kind of tie back in with the communities. And I, th I think it's kind of figuring out what I'm going to sit in that, what I want to do in that. But I'm kind of, I'm always thinking of my position in these things in a very collective way. I am an individual, but I am fitting myself into a collective. I'm not leaving uni thinking that I want to start my own independent business in a movement. I'm thinking I want to make myself the best person I can be to join a movement. Um, to join something that already exists, something, you know, as a legacy that's older than I am. And I, I want to find 
I want to make myself the best person I can be to fit into that. And part of that is doing something that makes me happy. You know, you have to sometimes kind of be a little bit kind of selfish to be uh, not selfish kind of thing. You know, I can't just do the most needed thing right now because that will get, that won't make me happy in the long term. There's lots of stuff I started realizing kind of as I'm coming to the end of uni. I had loads of stuff just pop up right at the end. And I was like, oh, why didn't this turn up like six months ago? Um, <laughs> but things like we don't have, we don't have the tools for agriculture in the UK anymore. Everyone keeps on talking about small organic farms um, as being like a way, really strong way forwards for agriculture with climate change. So people can be a lot more attentive to the stuff that's being grown and make sure that like it is responding okay to kind of climate change. And we don't have the hand tools anymore being produced in the UK. Somebody I know who um, runs a small organic farm has to go to Portugal to get good, strong mattocks because the only mattocks being produced in the UK now aren't strong enough to be used on a commercial scale. Um, so I think kind of maybe something in figuring out how mid-scale production in both food and textiles, because they're both farming, um, how the kind of mid-scale production be kind of uh, kind of uplifted in the UK and strengthened and be a really resilient industry because it, it needs to be resilient. Like we're going to have more and more supply chain problems going forward, I reckon. So it doesn't need to be independent or closed. It's not like kind of about having something closed to other people. It's about having something that can be resilient and sustainable for itself. And kind of reaching out from that can be like a collaborative fun thing instead of just kind of like an exploitative necessity. I think that's kind of going forward. I think that's kind of where I'm thinking of going. Um, well, thank you, Bryn. That's been really insightful passionate um take on your experiences and your values and and your research and it's been brilliant we wish you all the best and look forward to seeing what you're going to do and where you'll be thank you cheers thank you for listening if you'd like to know more about the ideas discussed, please check the show notes, which would include some links and references. And to find out more about Cardiff School of Art and Design, please visit the website at cardiffmet.ac.uk forward slash CSAD.